All right, well, this morning we look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, uh, verse 14, all the way through uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. And we will be concentrating on verses, uh, essentially verses uh, 2 uh, to 10. And there is a certain overlap with the last time we were together looking at these verses. Uh, but I wanted to set before you that this particular passage within its context deals with the conflict that was brewing in uh, chapter one of first uh, Corinthians. And there Paul alludes to a conflict that was discovered by Chloe's people and Chloe's people were uh, part of a church that was established and they received word that there was a brewing conflict among the general assembly, the general church in the Corinthians. And so Paul goes right to that. And in verse 10 of chapter one, I want to read just that little section to you because I want to give you a reminder as to what he's addressing in this conflict. In verse 10 of chapter one, he says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there would be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. And so Paul alludes to this conflict because it is, by this point, certainly raging among the Corinthians. And in fact, we discovered last time that he could not give them the proper nourishment that they needed because they were so busy in strife and conflict against each other. But they were also busy hiding and boasting in men. And because that was the case, Paul could not go further than the basics uh, concerning what they needed spiritually in Christ. And we talked about even his distinction on categorizing who is spiritual. And we use that in the positive sense. Uh, with respect to being born again, having the new nature, having the mind of Christ, and then who is fleshly, those who exhibit tendencies and rebellion and practices and sin that would show that they do not belong uh, to Christ. And so Paul, however, he, uh, he doesn't simply deal with it in the manner of hiding in men, because I believe that is a cause and effect. He doesn't simply deal with these things with respect to the personality cults that develop and uh, boasting in men, because, I, again, I believe that that is a certain cause and an effect. But he does deal with the characteristics that are true of those who do these things and what drives this division that's uh, that made its way in the church. And Paul marked the presence of jealousy and strife as featured among the immature. So Paul says those who are spiritually immature exhibit jealousy toward one another and strife against one another because he says outright that those who are in the flesh operate this way they conduct themselves this way in fact paul says that they are walking like mere men they're not walking as spiritual men they are not walking as though they 
have Christ in them, that they have the mind of Christ and the spirit of God living in them. But instead, they are walking like mere men. So they think they are elevated because they've elevated men and have uh, chosen to hide in them. But what they've done is they have uh, devalued themselves with respect to how they are to be viewed in the family of God. So they are walking like mere men, and therefore they are fleshly. And since they have raised up for themselves factions, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 1, they had stunted their own spiritual growth. So it wasn't that Paul had set out to bore them. It was that Paul could not go further because their spiritual nourishment was not prepared to give them what they needed because they were full of jealousy. They were full of clamoring, trying to reach the top of whatever pecking order or hierarchy that they wanted to establish for themselves. And they therefore limited their own spiritual diet. Paul wasn't about to give them what they could not digest. And they couldn't digest it because they were keeping themselves from all that Paul wanted to provide for their sanctification. Paul wanted to give it to them. He wanted to give them with their sanctification, that word meaning that act by which God for a one time declares uh, the sinner cleansed, but then it is a progressive reality that takes place in the sinner, whereby uh, from his uh, nature as being born again, he is progressively cleansed throughout his life and then reaches the state whereby he will be glorified in Christ Jesus and see him face to face at the return of Christ or upon uh, his death, his or her death. But I will say this. I believe that what we are seeing, this fact that they kept themselves from all that Paul wanted to give them is one of the key areas where Christians do not see the fruit of spiritual growth in their lives. So I believe that this is a key area. I'm not saying it's the only area. And I'm I'm not saying that there's not other key areas, but I am saying that this is one of the key areas where Christians do not see the fruit of spiritual growth in their lives. And I believe that is why Paul addresses it so early in the letter and in the epistle. And listen to this, when not only are there factions in their hearts and their minds, because that's where you raise up factions, divisions, jealousy, self-ambition. Clamoring, strife. It all starts in the heart and the mind. So not only are there factions in their hearts and minds, even if these factions do not do not manifest themselves openly, even if they don't manifest themselves openly. But when there is jealousy, strife and ambition and anger rooted in their hearts, you cannot grow. You cannot be nourished. You cannot flourish as a believer. You cannot walk as a spiritual Person, And I mean that again in the positive sense of being born again. And so you have people who are walking like this today. They are walking in this fleshly uh, clamoring and this fleshly jealousy and strife. They have erected in their own minds factions, men that they believe are super spiritual in such a way, not so to bring glory and honor to Christ, but in a way where they hide in these individuals. They hide in these men. And they conduct themselves like these men are mediators between themselves and God. And so Paul is against that for many reasons. But the big one is it stunts spiritual growth. You cannot grow as a Christian. You cannot be nourished on the fullness of what God has in his words. And because this is largely tied to the wisdom of God proclaimed in his word, you cannot be wise as God intended. You can only aspire to be foolish. 
as the world intends. But in the Corinthians, you see, for in them, they cannot receive all that God has given them in the word. They can't receive it. They can't receive all that God has. It's not that they couldn't listen, and it's not that Paul couldn't say it. But even if he said it, they wouldn't receive it, and it wouldn't be of nourishment to them because they were full of jealousy. They were immature. So maturity is not based on years, age, and experience. It's based on consistency and and sound doctrine. It's based on holding to the convictions, and it's based on refraining from joining yourself to idols, even if those idols are other men. And so Paul spells all that out. And you can see that maturity is based on the fruit of the Spirit. So then those who have the fruit of the Spirit, love, patience, kindness, joy, and it goes on and on. The fruit of the Spirit is evident among the mature. So the immature, they don't display the fruit of the Spirit because they're immature. They have self-ambition, jealousy, vanity, anger, me, 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 me. That's all they can think about. And for in them, they cannot receive all that God has given them in the word. This is also a very subtle thing. Because listen to this. Much of professing so-called Christianity and modern evangelicalism has been built on factions. They have been built on factions. It has been built on clamoring, self-ambition, vanity, jealousy, anger. It's built on these things. And so it is upon that foundation that there must be financial growth. Financial growth. And then that financial growth is made to seem as though it's synonymous with spiritual growth. So there must be this financial growth. And there even may be the appearance of numerical growth. But that does not always mean that there is spiritual growth. Just because one is growing financially or one is growing numerically. I'm not against Those who are growing numerically the right way or those who are growing financially the right way. But those things are not a mark of God's approval and commendation if it is built on factions. And much of so-called Christianity today is built on factions. So Paul shows us here. He shows us that spiritual growth is a very distinct and particular thing. It is a very distinct and particular thing. It is solely from the hand of God, and it is he alone, he'll get into this, who receives the glory for it. So it's solely from the hand of God. So spiritual growth is from God's hand alone. And he alone receives the glory for it. So one way to tell if You are either in a factious situation, you have come out of a factious situation, as many of us have, or you are trying to raise up a factious situation is who gets glory for what is done? Who gets glory for that which is done? And if one can truly say that Christ gets the honor, glory and praise for it, then men have no bearing on what is accomplished in as much as God is the source. Their bearing is what I'm about to say next, that they are certainly instruments in God's hand. But it is God alone who initiates growth. It is God alone who who uh, nourishes growth. I'll tell you that because that's what Paul says. In fact, we're going to hit this verse a few times. But in 
Verse six of chapter three says, I planted Apollos water. But look at what he says. But God was causing the God was causing the growth. God is causing the growth so that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But God who causes the growth. It's God who causes the growth. So so many do not trust God and believe that they're causing the growth and they abandon God's way of doing things. But it is God alone who initiates growth. It is God alone who nourishes growth. And even when he uses instruments in the growth process, he gives them the discernment and the mindset to praise him alone for it. He wants them to praise him. And if anyone is receiving praise for God's growth, then those men, if they truly are God, they deflect the praise away from themselves to him. Now, I'll be honest with you, that is not a virtuous thing to do. In fact, we have had to recondition ourselves in modern, uh, the modern evangelical climate that we're in for that to be seen as virtuous. The fact that a man will humbly defer to God, in spite of whatever we see, right? Because we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. Whatever we see, we praise God for it. Whatever little growth we see, we give honor and praise to him. We don't praise men for this. And so, so many would believe that that is that is against the grain to actually say, I praise God for all he has accomplished for his name alone. So you see here that it is God. It is God who is praised. It is God who gives the gift of discernment. And Paul's going to he's going to get into that, too, to see these men for who they are, men who are faithful, see them as servants. But what I love about this, too, is that Paul even though his name is in the factions, these imaginary factions that are raised up, he does not honor their factions. He doesn't honor their factions. He doesn't pretend their factions are connected to reality or the will of God, which is the only reality. Instead, he wanted to correct their thinking. He doesn't honor their factions. He wants to correct their thinking. He wanted them to receive more. He starts when he says in verse four, for when one says I'm of Paul, he starts with himself. He starts with himself. He doesn't say it's OK to say I'm of Paul because I have X amount of years in ministry. I've been persecuted. I have extensive travel. He doesn't he doesn't begin to PR market himself. What he says is I want to start with the imaginary faction that bears my name and has hijacked my purpose. So he says, for when one says I am of Paul and another I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? The fact that you're doing this, you're walking like those who walk according to the philosophers, the sages, which was then the spirit of the age at that time. And I don't believe that that's changed. I believe it has gotten more sophisticated. But Paul doesn't honor their faction. That's the first place he goes to help them in their sanctification. I will not honor factions that you raise up. Instead, he says, I want to help you think. I want to help you think. And I'm going to give you what God has accomplished to help you think. Paul knew that the men who they claimed served their factions were men who served God and God alone. Paul knew that. Now, I would suppose so many who are the head of these factions today, they're not serving God and God alone. So they love the factions. They love the fact that people are divided and jealous because then they can just counsel you during your jealousy and make money by your presence. But what I'm saying is this isn't business. This is about spiritual eternity. 
And so what Paul says, I'm not going to legitimize your jealousy, your ambition, your strife, or your anger. I'm going to teach you how to steer away from it. And I believe that that should be the heart of anyone who truly loves the Lord, that they should want to steer your heart away from raising up factions, even if those factions only exist in your mind as a figment of your imagination. But Paul knew that this was a very subtle and deceitful thing, that these men whom they raised up were actually servants of God and actually served one another. They served one another. And yet the people, the people were blessed by God through these instruments. But the issue is the people were blessed by God through these instruments by God's salvation through their ministries. Having said that, the question would be, and it's one that we have to think about because it's a silly thought to take this in the other direction. Why exalt the instruments? And not the one who sent them. Why exalt the ones who God sent. And not the God who sent them. So why. Why in the present age in which we live. Has become such a natural thing to praise men. This celebrity culture. Of modern evangelical. uh, Mindset. It is quite disgusting. And it's quite disgusting to God. Because if these men are truly his. And there's so many of them. But if these men are truly his, then we have to praise the God who sent them. If they're not, then there's no praise to God who sent them. We want them to close their mouths and take a seat. But then why would we exalt these men? Why would we exalt these men? We must exalt God. And namely, he goes to Apollos and he goes to himself. What then is Apollos? What are they? And what is Paul? He's defining who these men actually are, himself included. Because he he has to help the Corinthians steer their thinking away from this fleshly uh, idolatry uh, with boasting in men. And this personality cultism. And so he says, he defines it for them. He says... I'll tell you who we are. We are servants through whom you believed. God used us to help you have faith. He used us even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Our opportunities were not equal, so to speak. And one's work may have been more expansive than the next. But as God gave us opportunity, we took the opportunity and it was God who sent us and it was God who used us. And he used us in that process to help you achieve the faith. So Paul and Apollos shared in the responsibility. They shared this together. They shared in the responsibility of serving the people and ministering to their needs. So as we talked about last time, just for a little bit, God used Paul to plant. So there's an agricultural example. He used Paul to plant. And he used Apollos to water. Do you know what's missing? Neither one created the soil. And so he's saying essentially, Paul planted. He planted what was already there. And Apollos watered to bring a certain nourishment. So this agricultural example is not lost on us 
because I believe it's tied to something that's said way back in the Gospels. Because remember, it's all connected in the New Covenant. Paul was learned of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. So I don't believe that this is the first time that this, what is being said, has shown up in the Word. I'm going to connect it for you. It's not lost on us because we understand all along that it is God who establishes the soil. You know where you heard that before? You heard that when Jesus spoke the same way in his parable of the soils, where he talked about how God prepares the soil and that there's an enemy who's coming along trying to tamper with the soil and tamper with those who are planted. And he also speaks of the soils as a foundation that needs to be so sound and as a foundation that needs to be so nourished and fertilized that there will be growth. I believe that Paul is very much connecting what he's saying here to that example. For one, he assumes that they know what the soil is. He assumes that they know what the soil ought to yield. And so I believe that there's no secret that he's taking the teachings of Christ to bear upon the people of Christ and to get their minds to think about what it looks like in the heart of belief and what it should look like in a climate where people are beginning to follow after the planter and the water and the one who waters. And so we see that Paul is here, I believe, very sternly. I believe that Paul is expounding on many of the very same things he learned from our Lord. This is scripture. This is, this is divine truth. This is the divine author taking that which belongs to Christ and revealing it through us through his apostle. Well, the point then is God causes what was planted and nourished with water to flourish. And I'll be honest, he says that. He says in verse 6, God was causing the growth. Well, that means he then controls the soil and he controls all the elements. If you look at verse 7, so then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Well, let me explain what is said there. Paul is not saying in verse 7 that each who plants and waters is worthless. He's not saying they're worthless, but he is saying they are men. He's saying they're men, and we must regard them as men. They are not gods, and God alone has caused them to plant into water. So praise be to his name. When he says neither is anything, Paul is valuing them on this basis. Are they worthy of worship? That's what he's saying. When he says they're, they're not anything, neither, uh, neither the one who, who plants nor the one who waters is anything, he's not saying to disregard or devalue them. He's asking the essential question because this is all dealing with the wisdom of God and of who do we worship? Do we worship and boast in men? Do we act like men saved us or do we act like God saved us? But he's saying, are they worthy of worship? Is Paul, are Paul and Apollos worthy of your worship that you would ascribe to Christ? So on that basis, the answer is no. No man is worthy of worship. So in appraising those ministers, those who serve along these lines, we find that where they are valuable, it is, listen to this, only in as much that they are his and that they labor for him. So ministers are only valuable in the sense that they belong to him and they labor for him. And we glory in him for their labors. 
He's not saying we disregard them because that's the other tendency to treat those who are truly faithful in Christ as though they mean absolutely nothing. And I want to rescue them, too, because they do mean everything in the economy of God, but they don't mean anything in the economy of worshiping someone for what has been done. And Paul will get to that as well. But their value, as I said, is that they are his and that they labor for him and that they labor together for him. And so we then praise him for what they have accomplished. We praise God for what they. I know this sounds so simple, but you see it so less, so uh, so little today. We glory in him for their labors. Now, listen to this. This also does not mean that they are not commended by God. We don't take such people for granted. We went through that in Romans 16. We don't take the people whom God has set forward, charted their course to serve you faithfully. We don't take them for granted. But this also means essentially in the positive sense that they are commended by God. Look at verse uh, look at verse eight. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one. Remember what I said, laboring for him, laboring together. But each this is their value. Each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. God does esteem them as valuable eternally valuable so much so that he will reward them according to their labors he's going to reward them according to their labors now i want you to see a fine distinction the labor may not yield the visible result that you and i impose on this but god sees the labor he's looking at them work Remember in Romans 16, when we when we were in the greetings of Paul, and Paul began to rail off all these people who in the annals of church history have seemed to have gotten lost. And he points out their labors. He points out where they're faithful. He says, this person did this and this person served prison time with me for the gospel. And this and, and, and just so much of it were names that. We don't hear today. It's the greatest scandal because we're hearing all these people who who have shown up in the last 30, 40 years. And somehow their work seems to diminish the work that the divine author has set forward to be remembered for all eternity. But my point is that they are valuable. Ministers of Christ are valuable, eternally valuable. However, they are not the object of your worship. They are not subjecting themselves to be worshipped by you. And this is what Paul says, because Paul's point are that both the one who plants and the one who waters are joined together for God. They're joined together. Their efforts are not distinct from one another. They're not competing against one another. Well, I planted 50 plants and I watered 51 plants. They're not fight. They're not they're not walking around with a camera trying to film the planting and water efforts. So that you can see that there's gardening taking place. This isn't this this isn't a show. And so many are treating Christianity like it's a show. They want lights, camera, action. And what Paul is saying is that is worthless. And that is how worthless people function. But in this economy, the economy of God's kingdom so to speak we know that these individuals 
whose efforts are joined together. They're doing it for God. He's controlling and nourishing the growth. It's he that controls and nourishes the growth. One is planting, one is watering together, and neither one may know that the other one was doing what they were doing, but they are joined by God in doing so. For God moves in these ways to bring people together in this way, but they are not worthless men. And we know that we must not dismiss them so as to raise up an imaginary Christ faction, such as to say, I'm going to disregard all true ministers because I belong to Christ. That's what the Corinthians were doing in the Christ faction. They were saying, forget the Paul, the true Paul, forget the true Apollos. I'm just going to stick with Christ. Yes, stick with Christ, but recognize that he's using those who minister for him to proclaim the things to you, to strengthen you and themselves in their sanctification. Do you see the great, I would say, balance in this? True balance. So this does not mean to disregard those who labor for him. Paul's going to get into that. You know why he gets into it? Because these Corinthians begin to disregard Paul. So first they try to exalt him in the first few chapters. And then by the time we get to the second epistle, uh, the second section epistle of this, second Corinthians, uh, then, then they, they begin to say, well, you know what, Paul, you're no longer welcome here. We want super apostles to take your place. All because Paul wanted to point them to Christ. They become bored with Paul because he wants them to he wants them to worship Christ. Worship God. Be thankful for the people whom he has sent. But give your worship to him and him alone. And so I want you to think about it this way. We know, we know that this must not be the case among the Corinthians or among us, since God grants rewards to those who labor for him. God cares. God cares about the labor efforts. We see that in verse 8. Those labors are eternally valuable to God and therefore must also be to us. If God looks at these labors and say these are eternally valuable, then they must be valuable to us. I want you to think of it this way. You have been blessed by God through men. Through men. I'm not saying every man, but you have been blessed by God through men. And it is a blessing to have affection for those whom God has sent. Bible shows that everywhere. It's a blessing to have affections for those whom God has sent. But you must only worship God and boast in God alone. You only worship God and you boast in God alone. Now, I recognize the temptation on either side of this is to exalt men and disregard Christ or to devalue men and say, you know what? Christ And Paul is looking at the factions because they did that on each side of the factions that they said, you know what? These laborers, they don't matter, which is why Paul says we're servants. We're serving you. He says it in chapter three, and then he goes into the whole chapter four and says, we're serving you. We're doing this for you. This isn't simply for ourselves. Those who come along and want to make a name for themselves. And we see them coming along later in Corinthians. They want to make a name for themselves at your expense. They want to devalue you. They're doing it for themselves. But Paul says, not us. God will also reward the efforts of those who have been who have been blessed. And he will reward the efforts of those who have blessed our brothers and sisters in the kingdom. He's going to reward their efforts. He's going to reward their efforts. 
But listen to this. What Paul is saying is that God does not reward men according to anyone's praise for them. He rewards them according to their labors. He rewards them. He's looking at what they do and he'll reward their works, their labors. He's not looking at who has the larger fan base, who's praising this minister the most, and I'll make sure to reward him. That's that's what men do. That's what fleshly men do. Instead, his standard is a very intimate one. It's a very intimate standard according to their labors. What is more black and white than that? It demands our full attention. Listen, he does not reward them based on how you feel about them. He rewards them based on their labors. He doesn't reward them based on whether or not they have met any subjective standard of approval on your part. He doesn't say, well, you thought that they did a good job, so I'm going to go ahead and give them a reward. He is not interested in your first impressions. You're looking a person up and down to see if they pass the eyeball test of outward appearances. He is interested in their labors. What are they doing? Not how are they presenting themselves. Not how do you feel when they say what they say. It's are they laboring for Christ? Are they doing what God commanded? That's what he rewards. God rewards their labors. Now, having the mind of Christ, you can see what those labors are. You can test and measure those labors. But God rewards them. He looks at their works and then he rewards their labors. That means that God sees their labors. He sees their labors. He sees what men do. And listen, he sees what they do not do. He pays them in full or we'll get to the later sections in verses uh, 12 and 13 and uh, and 14 and all the way down. But we look at these verses later and you'll see that. He will even withhold payment by judgment. He'll withhold the reward if they're not laboring the right way. He may spare the man if the man is one who is born again, immature, has set up himself as pretending to be mature and thus built with materials that will not last in this uh, in this situation whereby one is supposed to construct on the foundation of Christ. He will burn it all down and save the man in some cases. But for the one who is faithful, he'll reward his labors for building the correct way, for building the correct way. And so that's what Paul is interested in. He's saying, don't don't settle for the factions. Don't settle for hero worship. Don't settle for jealousy, strife, setting up gangs and factions among yourselves. He says, don't settle. Worship Christ. Be thankful for the instruments that he has sent in the building process. But he's saying, do not settle. But the men who labor for him, this is what Paul wants to get to. And he's going to spend this chapter and the next chapter dealing with this. The men who labor for him are co-laborers together for him in the true sense. For the benefit of believers. It is for the believer's benefit. That's almost a tangible thing. For the benefit of believers. I'm not speaking in theory where people will say, I do this for Christians. I do this for believers. I do this for Christ. And then you look at them and everything they do is really for themselves. 
But this is for the benefit of believers. Gifts that they have received by the Holy Spirit. And they are therefore giving those gifts to the believers. Doing the practical things that would uh, put them in position to demonstrate a love for the Christians. And you'll see what gets crowded out here. There is no room here for hero worship. There is no room here for hero worship, which is so tempting among so many. And there is no room for pragmatic frustrations that would place uh, that some would place upon God's men because they do not meet some extra biblical standard that has been erected. When people become angry with you because you will not deviate from God's will. All that gets crowded out because Paul could have said, you know what? Let's eliminate the Apollos, Cephas, and Christ faction. Let's keep mine. Or let's merge my faction with the faction that you're saying is Christ. And somehow we'll make this all work. Paul said, tear them all down. Tear them all down because it's a wrong foundation. It's going to be burnt anyway. It will not last. Christ has not commanded us to build this way. And the blessing about it is Paul is not saying that he is the only builder. He's saying that all the Christians who serve with him are building with him, but they're building on the same foundation. So if there's a different foundation that someone is building and they're calling themselves Christian, they are not Christian indeed. They're not building on the foundation that is Christ that Paul will talk about in verse 11. Paul's point is that we must build. Paul is saying we must build. We must build. It's not just I must build. I'm building. It's not just me and some secret fraternity of elite guys in my circle are building. It's we must build, but listen to this. We must build God's way. That's what he's trying to teach the Corinthians. And I believe he's trying to teach all the churches throughout the generations, including us. We must build God's way. We must build with his instructions. We must build with his instructions. We must build with his program. Or a word that you're familiar with, his dispensation. Because that is the idea of a program. We must build according to his dispensation. That's why we spend so much time talking about the chronology of it all. And what are the doctrines that we find in Romans and how it's all tied together in the construction of the Lord's church. We must also build with his materials. You'll see that in the verses that follow. We must build with his materials. We don't get to say it's for Christ and then use some materials that won't last. We have to build with his materials. And I use that more in a symbolic way, but there is a literal uh, there is a literal way to think about that in the annals of spiritual warfare. The materials we are given are the spiritual weapons of warfare. The things that Paul later says in Ephesians that help us not only in war, but help us to construct the way that God would have us construct. Because those are all the same. But we do all this and we must do it for his people. We cannot build with the right materials, with the right instructions, with his program and say it's his way if we're not doing it for people who are born again. Because that is a problem as well. Paul doesn't say this is all okay as long as we just fill a building. 
This is a very particular thing. And I believe the frustrations toward Paul the Apostle in this area, and you'll see him throughout Corinthians, is because he simply refuses to compromise. He refuses to do it any way except the way that God gave him. He said, when I came to you, I came determined to preach exclusively Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why do we have to keep hearing about Christ? Why can't we just hear about today's issue? Why can't we talk about COVID? Why can't we talk about this? Well, I came to you to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Paul is not eliminating simple conversation. What he's saying is we must elevate what we're thinking about so that we can elevate beyond the wisdom of this age. He talks about that later in verses 17 and beyond, specifically 18. But next time, next time we will learn in the verses that follow how Paul commended the Corinthians to build. Paul says, Corinthians, I want you to build. And here's how I want you to build. And listen to this. Here's what I want you to build. Because you've already shown you can build. You've built factions. But I want you to build something of lasting, eternal, and spiritual value. We will learn what materials that Paul wanted them to use to build and why that is all so important. Let's pray.